Well, the shadow, as Jung defines it, would represent those parts of ourselves, our own personality, or sometimes of our affiliations, our organizations, such as identification with the state or with a particular religious body or a certain political group, because groups have shadows too. Those aspects of ourselves, which when brought to consciousness, we find contradictory to our professed values or our intentional values, we find disturbing perhaps, or we find challenging in some ways. The shadow is not synonymous with evil. It's, it has to do with our reluctance to engage what is intrapsychically active uh, because it threatens to some degree the assurances and stability of the ego consciousness. Our biggest shadow is not stepping into the magnitude of our own journey to say, who am I? What is my calling here? What stands in the way of that? Uh, how am I to live my life in the face of circumstances over which perhaps I have little control? Those are questions which are intimidating, of course, for individuals. And so we rationalize, we postpone, we stiff, stuff it into the unconscious, we blame others. And those are maneuvers to avoid the shadow. everybody and welcome back to Chasing Consciousness. So today we are covering the fascinating topic of Jung's concept of the shadow in analytic psychology, a term that has become overused, I fear, in pop psychology and seems to be understood in many different ways depending on who you're talking to. So without saying too much, as I really prefer not to sort of project any of my own ideas onto how we're going to conceptualize this before hearing from today's guest, a, a great young specialist. But I would say that as individuals and as a society, we are clearly troubled and not, it seems, by something coming from our conscious ego minds. So perhaps our understanding of the shadow is more urgent than ever to try and solve some of those problems. But to clarify this mystery, our guest today is one of the world's most published and respected Jungian analysts, teachers, authors, and commentators, Dr. James Hollis. After a career teaching literature, he then retrained to become a Jungian analyst and is still lecturing, writing books, and giving psychotherapy at the age of 83. He's written 19 books on Jungian themes, among which Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves, uh, which we'll be touching on today. A quick aside, a thanks to Monica Wickman, my guest from the Collective Unconscious, episode number six, for putting me in touch with Dr. Hollis, and to Laura London's brilliant Speaking of Jung podcast for her amazing interviews with Dr. Hollis that gave me so much insight into uh, his work while researching this interview. Now, I have been looking for the right guest to do a show about the shadow since long before the podcast started, so I simply can't wait to get into this. So without further ado, let's go. Dr. James Hollis, welcome to Chasing Consciousness. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you today? My privilege, Freddie. Pleased to be with you today. So James, I just love to get started asking my guests about their first conscious experiences and, and their first deep reflections about life and about the world. What can you remember from those earliest conscious thoughts that stick out as you look back that may have been relevant? Well, you know, I recall certain fragmentary experiences of childhood as anyone might. <clears throat> I was deeply influenced, though, by World War II. Uh, I wasn't in uh, England where the bombs were falling, as uh, many of your ancestors would have been. I was safe in America's heartland, but I was very conscious of the fact that there were people suffering in the world, that there was uh, enormous um, heaviness hanging over people's lives. There were things like blackouts. There were things like, um, you know, air raid drills and so forth. And it was even worse elsewhere, obviously. 
um, that moved me. And I and I saw people at um, train stations weeping. I saw houses where there were signs that their loved one would never be coming home and so forth. So I, what I most absorbed during that time, I think, was a, a sense that the, the Germans have a word for it, Weltschmerz, the suffering of the world. I was keenly aware of that. I was sensitive to it, maybe too sensitive. It permeated me. And as a result, and this is going to sound very weird, but I've written about it, so it's not like I, I haven't uh, talked about it before. I would go in the street corner and sing to myself, but I was singing to the world in some way. And it was meant to be a kind of identification with and a blessing for those who were going through the perils of, of that time. Songs like, um, you know, we'll meet again, don't know where, don't know when, and, and, and so forth, all having to do with loss and parting, uncertainty, and so forth. And um, maybe, maybe that was the beginning of the therapist in me who would work with people later. I do believe at some level, I also reacted to the magnitude of the world's suffering and dis discomfort by intellectualizing it. And so my early life was in academia, which was very rich and very valuable, and I don't regret it in any way whatsoever. However, I came to realize that was one of my ways of distancing myself from the magnitude of the feelings that were boiling within me. And so at midlife, when I was privileged to have a depression that pulled me down and forced me to sort of say, what's going on here? And What's what has been neglected in your life? Um, I was obliged, really, to return to that which I had purposely left behind, and um, then encounter the real world of human suffering again, which is part of the work of a psychoanalyst and therapist, as as I am on a daily basis. So, in a very very long winded fashion, um, I, I I think I was carrying in some level the weight of the world's suffering at that point, which is hard to imagine for a tiny child, but that was in fact my report in response to your question. Absolutely, and my father was uh, is a very similar age to you, and, and you know, a bomb was lodged in the roof of his house, um, yes. and I think we'll probably get onto this, just how much of these intergenerational uh, elements and the presence of war in our history is such an important part of the shadow. That's right. So, James, let's get into our main topic for today, mm -hmm. the shadow, uh, this important term coined by Jung, and then we can talk about how important it is for us to integrate it and to make it consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, so the first question is, what exactly is the shadow, according to Jung? And I'm also interested in the history. Tell us the story of how his early work brought him to that concept. Mm -hmm. Well, the shadow, as Jung defines it, would represent those parts of ourselves, our own personality, or sometimes of our affiliations, our organizations, such as identification with the state or with a particular religious body or a certain political group, because groups have shadows too. Those aspects of ourselves, which when brought to consciousness, we find contradictory to our professed values or our intentional values, we find disturbing, perhaps, or we find challenging in some ways. The shadow is not synonymous with evil. It's It has to do with our reluctance to engage what is intrapsychically active uh, because it threatens, to some degree, the assurances and stability of the ego consciousness. So, ironically, Jung said our biggest shadow issue is not our capacity for evil, although there's significance there, of course. He said it's that we live unlived lives, small lives. He said we walk in shoes too small for us. And our biggest shadow is not stepping into the magnitude of our own journey to say, who am I? What is my calling here? What stands in the way of that? Uh, how am I to live my life in the face of circumstances over which perhaps I have little control? Those are questions which are intimidating, of course, for individuals. And so we 
rationalize, we postpone, we stiff, stuff it into the unconscious, we blame others. And those are maneuvers to avoid the shadow. But basically to think of the shadow as the fullness of my own humanity. The wisest thing ever said about the shadow came from the Latin playwright Terence, 21 centuries ago, who said, nothing human is alien to me. So if I look at the world and I see the history of the world, I have to identify that I too carry that same DNA, those same capacities. Your, one of your re listeners uh, might uh, say, but oh, but I've never murdered anybody. Well, maybe we haven't literally, but maybe we've murdered somebody's dreams for them. Maybe we've murdered aspects of our own creative possibilities. The, the murder is alive and well in us. You can be sure of that. It doesn't mean we have to literally act it out, of course. And again, very briefly, there are four ways in which the shadow tends to manifest. First of all, and most commonly, it's operating unconsciously. So in our interactions with other people, the shadow is always present. Um, the power complex, for example, is always present between people. And as Jung said, when power prevails, love is not. So it destroys relatedness. But it's always there, and you better deal with it consciously, because if you don't, it's going to be working its way unconsciously. So most of the time, the shadow is experienced unconsciously, and we have to deal with the consequences that come out of our behaviors or our failures to act. Or secondly, <clears throat> we project it onto someone else. We disown what we find unacceptable in ourselves. And so we blame the people across that imaginary line on the other side or people of another religion or, or color or whatever. Um, those are the people who've caused the problems that we're in. So I'm able once again to distance myself from my accountability for the shadow. Thirdly, sometimes people love to enter the shadow and be possessed by it. I mean, some of the hooligans that you see at the at the football matches are good examples of that, where people get loaded uh, with alcohol and, and the grievances of their lives and take it out on everybody else around them. And you see, they're, they're in some way subsumed by that energy. When people march off to war, they're often filled with a war fever. See, they're in states of possession, in other words. That's what it means to be possessed by the shadow. Or I can get caught up in my own righteousness, the conviction that I know what's best for you, for example. And maybe I'm not governing my own life that well, but I can certainly tell you what you ought to do with your life. Well, that's being owned by the shadow. Uh, and fourthly, of course, is to make it conscious. And then you have a lot of work you have to do. In 1937, Jung gave a uh, set of lectures at Yale University in the United States, and he said, if you can find a person courageous enough to take on their own shadow, he said, that person will have done an immeasurable good for the world. That person has uh, eliminated at least some small part of the world's burden. So our, our work on the shadow is not um, in isolation. The work we do or fail to do shows up in our partners, shows up in our children, shows up in, in our engagements with, with community. And just one other aspect of that, another observation from Jung that I find haunting in a constructive way is his comment that um, the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So wherever I'm stuck or wherever I'm fearful or wherever I'm locked into something, chances are I'll either be telling my children consciously or unconsciously, this is where you too are limited. This is where you are stuck. Uh, or, or they will be spending their lives trying to get unstuck. So I'm a part of the shadow issue of parenting is wherever I am not addressing my own life issues, it will spill into the lives of my children and they'll carry it, which is ironically part of the work we do in psychoanalysis is we have to do some forensic work to discern what have been the parental imagos and to what degree do they support and give permission to that person's journey? To what degree do they stand there as fierce guardians um, and, and in their own you know, unconscious efforts to, uh, to control or, or, or to, to ratify the unlived life? So 
you can see how shadow work is daunting. We're going to be ambivalent about it because it does threaten our self-concept. And yet it's the most ethical thing that we can do for all of our relationships with people and with our relationship to society itself. You call it a social responsibility, which we'll Absolutely. come back to in a short while. And this shadow projection, but not just with our children, perhaps more, most importantly with our children, because they are so under our influence and they love us so much. But it, but with everybody we're in relationship to, and we'll come back to that social responsibility. Yes. Um, James, you've written many books that reference the shadow because it's such an important part of Jung's work. But perhaps mm -hmm. the one that most clearly speaks about it is the book that you wish to call Our Dark Selves, but publishers chose Why Good People Do Bad Things, Understanding Our Darker Selves. Mm -hmm. Sadly, we don't have time to go through chapter by chapter, but but tell us a little bit about the way you present the shadow in that book and the overall message of that book, should the listeners wish to go away and, and learn more about it. Well, I think I just summarized it, actually. Oh, right. That's that's most of the contents of that book. Actually, actually I did and, and as a kind of overview because, you know, again, I, I want to uh, ask people to consider when there are certain behaviors in their lives, which perhaps they didn't intend, but wound up um, keeping you stuck in the same old way, or perhaps was injurious to someone else. And you have to ask, where did that come from in me? What was that about? And I've said one of the central questions that any of us can ask at any time in our lives, particularly when we're making some large decisions, but what is that in service to within you actually, or really? Because you can't quite trust your first response. There will always be a rationalization. Um, what is that really in service to you? So if I make a particular decision, I might say to myself, well, I was just being accommodating and facilitating the conversation and moving it along or something like that. But when in fact, if I really pursue where from whence it came in the unconscious, I discern later that it was an old codependence or it was old fear of, of being excluded or needing to cultivate the approval of the other person. And you realize there was a lot of uh, agenda there that was operating unconsciously and actually tilted the balance. When you ask yourself at certain moments in your life, just as a, someone who is uh, on a railroad track can push a lever, which sends the train down one track or another, what was pushing the lever at that point? Um, I thought I knew at the moment, but I just made a major choice that's coming out of a very unaddressed part of my own psychic life. So our our capacity to work on ourselves, wh where did that come from? What did that it in my history, what stirred that response from me? And, and what was that secretly in service to? You see, most people wouldn't even bother to ask those questions. But if you really want to try to live a considered life, a conscious life, a thoughtful life, an ethical life, it means asking those kinds of questions. And when I do, I, I am finding myself then accountable, and that's an important word. I think it's reasonable to say anyone listening today would think, yeah, would probably agree. Uh, yeah, we're accountable for our choices and their consequences. We don't always foresee our consequences, but we're accountable for them. Uh, just again, to give another example of parenting, um, it's no secret that parents would like their children to grow up and become surprised like me, the parent, you know, since I'm such a paragon of virtue and so forth. Let this child grow up like me with values like mine and endorse, you know, my causes and so forth. Uh, maybe not get married and go away. Or if they get married, they can live in the same block so they can be here to take care of me. <laughs> see, you see how quickly you get into shadow issues because none of that conversation is about caring about the well-being of the child. It's about the unexamined narcissism of the parent. And who wants to look at that, you see? Uh, and, and yet when we don't, it's it's where the damage is done and, and where that child, again, is obliged to carry what we've failed to address in our own lives. Mm. Now, Dr. Hollis, the, you, there are so many little bits in what you've just said and, and other parts of your work in order to really understand the shadow and, and 
why integration is so important, I'd like to just clarify a few important Jungian themes that are just so succinctly highlighted in your work. So I think despite them all being quite different, they're all important to how we frame the best approach to the shadow for the listeners. Mm-hmm. And it would be great if at the end of each of these points, you just mention why that's important for the shadow in particular. The first one you've just mentioned, um, making the unconscious conscious, mm-hmm. which is, it could be argued, the objective of a Jungian approach to life. Um, tell us why he thought that was so important. And also tell us, we've we've already touched on it, this, you know, often some people, they criticize therapy as being self-indulgent. Um but actually, this process of forming relationship with yourself, of making our unconscious conscious, is a social responsibility, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. because it's via the unconscious that our psyche spills out into the world and out into our external relationships. This mm-hmm. is it as fundamental as it seems, this making the unconscious conscious to Jungian thought. It's a lifetime work. When we say make the, conscious un- the unconscious conscious, um, usually we do that if at all, when we're confronted by the consequences or someone else gets in our face and realizes and forces us to realize what we did or failed to do. But again, to, to look at where things are coming from inside of each of us. Now I'll give you a, an actual example of a conversation held earlier this morning where I was talking with a person in a familiar about a familiar problem, the so-called empty nest syndrome. This was a set of parents and I was talking to the father whose single child, the only child they have left for university about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. And they're going through all of this withdrawal and they've been very close, but there's a, there, there, there was a certain clinging that was there too. You know, they needed that child more than the child needed the parent. And I said, look, the central issue of this person going away is the necessity of separation that they need to grow up and step out into the world. And if you continue to send messages that this person is so necessary for taking care of your emotions, you will impede her own development. You will undermine her sense of purpose, undermine her sense of permission. And many times people live a kind of of, uh, qualified life. In other words, I'm, I'm able to do this as long as I meet these circumstances. For example, you can't believe how many physicians I have worked with through the years who, whose basic motive was to please their parents, you see. Well, that's understandable, but that's not a real vocation. That's a big difference between vocation and a complex, which is driving your, your life for you. As I said recently in an in a, in a, uh, interview in Minneapolis, uh, How do you really, I mean, what if you realize that a decision you made was made by an eight-year-old inside of you, a part of you that was formulated when you were eight and your understanding of the world and and yourself and how you had to to interact with that. Uh, You wouldn't turn your automobile over to an eight-year-old. You say the child's not old enough to see over the dashboard, but we do that all the time, psychologically speaking. And so usually we have to start dealing, as I mentioned before, start dealing with the shadow because it just caused some trouble in our life with others or, or, or with ourselves. And it sounds simple, but it's very hard because in a way, it's kind of like the problem of Oedipus. Oedipus is sincere. I mean, things are going badly in, in the state of Thebes. And he says, you know, there's been some kind of nefarious event or some crossing of the will of the gods here, and I'm going to pursue it, even if I have to track it even into my own court. Little does he know that the culprit he's looking for is himself. And ultimately, he has to examine what he has done in his life or failed to do and be accountable for that. So in doing that, um, you know, in in looking at that, I was saying to this father who is grieving the loss of the child, yeah, that's a normal reaction. And realize that you are not the owner of this child. This child was entrusted to you for a certain length of time till she could gather her own strength, her own wings and, and, and take off. And fortunately, that's what she's attempting to do. But here's the real issue of of facing you at this moment, and it's in all relationships. Ask yourself this question. 
what is this? What am what am I doing? Or excuse me, what is what am I expecting the other to do? That properly speaking is is mine to address. In other words, this is a person who, in his own life, had lost significant relationships as a child, and so has a strong excuse me, defense around the issue of abandonment. And so in a, in a certain way, his child leaving, which is a normal and natural thing to do, which he fully understands, is activating that whole field of energy within him. So there's a natural tendency to sort of reach out every day and say, what are you doing? What's happening? Are you still alive, etc." And I said, unwittingly, well, you have this need, that behavior will create in the child a sense of doubt and a sense that she's somehow responsible for the emotional well-being of the parent. So again, come back to that question. What am I asking of others I need to address myself? And that's a huge shadow project. And to his credit, he understands that. He realizes this is mine to deal with. If, if I love my daughter as he does, then I have to address my emotional needs myself and not dump them on her. And how interesting that the outside world and our relationships included, particularly with our children, but our relationships in general, offer a, a, a good mirror, a good reminder yes. for that internal work that needs to take place. And I sometimes feel that Jung was encouraging us to see the outside world in that way as a very symbolic place that was full of these opportunities to reflect mm -hmm. on our own stories. Sure. And that brings us on to the second point, James. Um, you speak about how when we're younger, we we naturally make oversimplified narratives about the world and we mm -hmm. storify our lives as a sort of necessary part of learning and the adaptation process that we need to survive. But when we get older and we start to really examine ourselves, those narratives can become an inhibition to a sort of realistic understanding of the world. We need a more subtle and nuanced understanding because nothing in life is that simple that black or white or good or bad as we tend to describe it as we're storifying in a, in, in a young age and we really in order to have a mature and realistic view of nature uh, and of the mind we need to see that nuanced spectrum of complex issues and then being able to hold those polarities and find peace in the tension between them is is an important part of shadow integration. Can you comment on the pitfalls of this very evolutionary necessary storification and simplification? Sure, we, we are the animal that needs to understand. And so we create provisional interpretations of the world based on the child's experience. So elemental questions like, are you trustable or not? Um, are, are you reliably going to be there or are you invasive and punitive or are you frequently not there? Are you abandoning and so forth? Now, that's all based on the fortuities of being born to family X, Y or Z and the circumstances they have to deal with there. You know, the, 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 the child might have to deal with a depressed parent. Or a parent who is so uh, harassed by, uh, you know, outside uh, work environment and so forth. But the child will internalize that as I'm unworthy of the generosity of your love and support. I can internalize that as being about me. And, and that's a story that makes me understand something. Don't ask too much. Don't expect too much. Um, uh, whatever the story is, it tends to get locked in. And in a later life, when those stories get triggered and they emerge, then we realize we're being governed by shadow personalities. Jung called these complexes. And, and, and again, the word complex itself is neutral. It's like apartment complex or airport complex, just a structure. But that structure holds a lot of energy, holds a, a fractal story of some kind, a narrative that tries to make sense of it. And it has a behavioral response too, like, run, get out of there, or move close and try to fix it, whatever the case may be. Um, and those are those are shadow governments. You can call them splinter personalities. And when they get triggered, they will take over and make decisions for us. I had a client once who was very keen on working with the shadow, and she started almost every session by saying, let me tell you what the kids have been doing this week. 
And the kids were, you know, those intrapsychic parts that were acting out. And she had a very fine capacity to identify, to make conscious those splinter personalities. I have to tell you a funny story briefly. I, I was in the hospital a few months ago and about to undergo a uh, difficult procedure. And the nurse says, now go to your happy place. And I said, this is my happy place. <laughs> you know, and she, she was trying to make conversation. She said, well, how does a, a, a psychologist differ from a psychoanalyst? And, and I said, well, for one thing, we try to, as you've said, stimulate a conversation with the unconscious. And she thought about that for a while. And she says, oh, I get it. You work with people in a coma which I thought was amusing. I didn't know what to say after that. It's like, okay, let's get on with the procedure, you know. Um, but you could say at times we are in a coma because some part of us takes over and you realize you, you were supposed to speak up there, you know, and a donkey stood on your tongue and you didn't say what you needed to say. What What is that? You say, well, that was an old story. If I open my mouth, it's going to be worse for me. That's the implicit message. Or uh, you know, keep your keep keep your mouth shut and stay out of harm's way. Or to get along, you go along. We have those kinds of narratives, all of us do, and because they interrupt in the free flow of our adult capacities, that's why we need to examine them to see from whence they're coming, see where they will be most activated. Because in the world of intimacy, we are most in the presence of our old, old stories on a 24-hour basis, and therefore there's even more shadow material evoked. Right, and this is why the complex is such an important concept here, and I can just hear my listeners itching to understand, like, how does making the unconscious conscious change our relationship to those complexes? With the work, does the complex itself change? Does the story update? to a more sort of nuanced and adult narrative. I mean, I'm thinking of some classics that you've you mentioned a few already, like I'm not good enough or it's all my fault. These these sort of, these 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 narratives that we're, we're still repeating, you know, tens of years later, they That's keep right. coming up. Does making the unconscious conscious alter those complexes? Well, you can put it this way. He said, we don't solve these problems, but we can outgrow them. Mm. That's an important distinction. In other words, we can't reach into your psyche and pull out the wiring of the old story. It's always going to be there. And it will be very powerful for the simple reason that it developed maybe in one of your most vulnerable phases of forming a sense of self and world and the need to understand how do I fit in? How do I stay out of harm's way? How do I get my needs met as best I can with limited resources, et cetera, et cetera? And to build alternative uh, narratives around that is not an easy thing to do. In other words, just making it conscious doesn't mean it goes away. It means now you have at least have a shot at understanding once in a while that that's going to get triggered. So if you can buy time or reflect on things before you make decisions, but um, challenging these old narratives uh, usually comes about, again, by having run into consequences. In other words, by definition, the unconscious is unconscious. But if you want to look at your behavioral patterns, that's the first place to start. Look at your patterns of avoidance. Why do you avoid? What's the point? I mean, obviously, you're avoiding something that feels overwhelming, but is it really? And where do you get that sense that it's overwhelming? See, that's usually the presence of that hidden story. Or examine the place where your own narcissistic needs dominate as you parent or with your partner. I mean, everybody marries at some level thinking, at least in the unconscious, at least in the shadow, um, my partner's going to take care of this for me, aren't they? Well, that's what builds mutual dependency for sure, but it doesn't, it doesn't produce in an evolved individual. If you see marriage or that kind of commitment, uh, again, as a vehicle for the support of the growth and development of each partner. Well, growth means you can outgrow some of those stories that may have brought you together. That can produce some real altered changes in the uh, texture of the relationship, that's for sure. But at the same time, you realize individuals can get stuck in old behaviors. You know, the parent uh, image is so uh, omnipresent. In, in other words, it's kind of a, f a joke out there that people lie on a couch and complain about mom and dad. 
Well, first of all, I don't have a couch. But it's also true that our primal sense of relationships came out of our engagement with mother and father. And if we were an orphan, then, then we have an orphan complex. But the, the, that's where the primal stories are, are launched. They're not the only stories. You get other stories from your culture and from your personal life experiences. As I was talking about, I got a story about the world and its suffering from just being a child of the 20th century. You know, I was one of many children. And um, underneath all of that is not what's happening, but how do how does each person internalize that? What does it make them do or what does it keep them from doing? You can say that of any of our acquired stories of our, our behavioral patterns or those clusters of, of uh, self-defeating energies inside of us. What does it make me do or what does it keep me from doing? And once you can answer that question, then you have an agenda for growth, because then sooner or later, you're going to have to do the thing that you're afraid of doing. I don't mean to literalize this. If you're afraid of heights, it doesn't mean you have to climb mountains. We're simply saying where you're feeling blocked or stuck or your, your choices are causing harm to you and others, there is always a summons there to courage and accountability. And if you can take that on, you're cleaning up a good part of your own backyard and you're cleaning up your relationship with other people. And this brings us on to meaning. And, and as you said, the sort of the, the what's to be learned from what things mean to us. And this is a really important point. You often speak about that happiness isn't the goal of life, but meaning is. Yes. I too feel that uh, apart from happiness, life is also filled with sadness and frustrations and, and injustices. So this finding of meaning, becoming conscious, so learning and being accountable to your choices is, for me, much more the objective of life. And to expect only happiness is just naive and delusional. Tell us a little bit about this odd, I sense quite new fad that really idolizes happiness, this kind of sort of spiritual bypassing. Almost. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, for most of humankind, happiness wasn't considered the goal of life. It was surviving till tomorrow was the goal of life. And as we've had greater material abundance and material uh, security, generally speaking, um, individuals have, have shifted. You know, happiness was to be found in an afterlife. And more and more people are, over the last 200 years have been seeing that it has to be this life that is meaningful or else. You know, if there's another life, it's another life. It's not this one. And as we all know, happiness is very transient and very contextual. If you're thirsty, a glass of cold water is going to make you happy momentarily. Too much water will drown you, right? Everything is contextual. And underneath all of that is, is the question, is happiness something that abides? Is it really worthy of my devoting energies to? Um, but meaning is something else. As Jung put it, he said, uh, the smallest of things with meaning is always greater than the largest of things without meaning. So I can achieve the career that I wish to have and find myself, you know, misplaced in what I'm doing in my daily life. And I keep thinking, well, if I bought a new car, if I moved here, or if I did this, I would be happy. Well, again, we're, we're searching for that elusive sense of happiness as something uh, abiding. It's, it's, again, something very transient. And, and meaning is something that abides. And when it moves, you have to move with it. So something could be very, very meaningful for a certain period of your life. And then, frankly, you outgrow it. You know, I've known people in terms of their careers or certain relationships and so forth, and, and they literally outgrow it. And then then you have to deal with the necessity of choice, the necessity of change and the issue of personal um, uh, permission. I found that most people do not have permission to have their own life. They may be very successful in the world as we measure external success. You know, we can look at your resume and sort of see what you're doing professionally, for example. But, you know, in, in the end, that's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? It's, it's ultimately, is this the best way to spend your life? Is this something that rewards you with that inner sense of satisfaction and purpose that, that comes out of that? And if it doesn't, what are you going to do about that? See, what changes do you need to make about that? Mm. 
In other words, don't ask these questions if you're not willing to address their answers, because sooner or later, we have to live in a, in a different way if we're going to be accountable for the conduct of our journeys. And I want to come back to change in a moment, because it's another really, really important thing here. Um, just a little aside on this, because it keeps coming up on the show with, you know, with the hero's journey stuff. And, and I still haven't made up my mind about this. Are negative complexes and failure and struggle and these kind of haunted houses, as you call them, of our least appreciated features, are are these negative experiences actually necessary for making the unconscious conscious? Could, well, a, life, could a life without suffering have meaning? Um, well, I, th I think it would be hard to find. I think there are people who, <clears throat> who may be very privileged in life and think they can have a, a life free of suffering, but all of us, has, all of us have an appointment with, with suffering in life sooner or later. Uh, all of us are mortal. It's the great democracy. You know, um, underneath all of this, once again, is the human being comes from mystery, uh, is here a short while, disappears into mystery. And the question is, why are you here in service to what? And what are you going to do with your life choices? How are you to live your life in the face of circumstances over which you may have very little control per se? You know, we can be born with a certain physiology or a certain social setting in which, you know, we're profoundly influenced or even stuck. But the question really then is, is how do you become yourself in the face of that? So, you know, the shadow, uh, again, is not evil. Remember, it's, it's the parts of ourselves that we prefer not to deal with. I don't want to acknowledge there may be a selfish part of me. I don't want to acknowledge perhaps an infantile part of me that's looking for someone else's approval. It's not inhuman to have that. If I have it, I, I rather than feel bad about that, I just have to say, well, that's something of which I now have to become more conscious. Uh, I don't want to deal with, uh, you know, my, my power complex or whatever form shows up here. But it's mine to struggle with. And if I don't, guess what? You get to struggle with it. You bear the consequences of that. My employees, my children, my whomever, it gets spread all around us. And again, that's why I say it's the best thing you can do for human relationships is, is to look at your own stuff first. My, my wife has humorously said, and this is kind of widely quoted, uh, relationship is finding one special person you can annoy for a very long time. Now, she was joking when she said that, but there's seriousness to that as well. In the course of living with another person, you're going to encounter their shadow sooner or later. And does romance survive encountering the shadow of the person? Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? That, that's something that people have to work through. Um, and, and again, the best thing I can do for my wife is to lift off of her my needs for emotional satisfaction, and then she could be free to be herself. And I can, I can, I have plenty of work to do. So I, I am uh, less of a burden to her, perhaps. Regarding this, just popping back for a moment to this sort of the, our propensity to maybe avoid facing those, those haunted houses and those shadows. It's worth mentioning the trickster archetype here. Now, mm -hmm. my interpretation here is that the trickster represents a disrupting energy that sort of comes in to shake things up, to unblock the inertia and get that process moving again, mm -hmm. but appears to the experiencer as a threat and as a destabilizer. What do you and, and, and Jung say about that trickster energy and how is it relevant to the chat? Sure. Well, the, the trickster is one of those energy sources that... Um, as you said, overthrows our expectations. And uh, you were counting on something and something else happens. Um, and it's life's way, and perhaps it even can come from our own unconscious, that uh, forces us to look at something in a new way, forces us to examine our behavioral patterns. Uh, many years ago, I was teaching a class of all things on classical Buddhism at a university. 
And um, I had to rush off to another city to see clients. And it was one of those tight schedules where I had to leave the classroom, jump in the car and drive to the office, et cetera, et cetera. So having just talked about, you know, the nature of Buddhism and, and the disassociation from the ego and the importance of letting go of the ego's busy schedule and so forth, I rushed to the car and I've lost my keys, of course. And, and I, I naturally was frantic, frustrated, et cetera. And finally, I'm giving you the short version of this. After an hour of looking, I had to return to my office. I couldn't even get into my own office. So I had to ask buildings and grounds to let me in. And nobody could find my keys. I went to Lost and Found and, and to um, buildings and grounds, et cetera. No keys. And about 6 p.m. that night, I get a phone call that an administrator had walked through the bathroom or the, the restroom where I had been en route to class. I put my keys down. He picked them up, put them in his pocket, and promptly forgot about that. Now, I can tell you, as I sat there simmering with hour after hour of appointments in another city, which happened to be Philadelphia, uh, being missed by my, my failure, but most important, by the end, I was laughing at myself. And I thought, what was it you were just talking about? of Buddhistic principles that could be a compensation for the craziness of the Western world. And in your schedule, nobody's crazier than you right now in trying to force all this into a tight schedule. And look what happened. And the next day when I walked in the classroom, I said to them, boy, do I have a story to tell you today. And it's about the trickster. Because there was no one I could blame I was irritated at the administrator that he didn't figure out that somebody would, might need those keys. That was his issue. But the trickster was the part of me that forced me to deal with my own busyness and my compulsivity. And it was a lesson well learned. And I have to remember that from time to time. So we have to be on the lookout for the trickster. I'm always uh, looking out for those stories because I, I think that they probably come up more often than we'll, we'll uh, give them credit for. Mm -hmm. Now, another really important uh, message in your work, change. Um, change is fundamental to nature. Mm -hmm. As stated in some of my favorite Chinese philosophy, Taoism, life itself is change. And this fluctuation between polarities is supernatural. Mm -hmm. um, Yet the human nervous system responds really badly to ambiguity and to uncertainty. Um, so we really, as we get mature, we need to know, we need to get used to this unknown and to, to sort of get used to that sense of fear of, of things not being clear and, and certain. Mm -hmm. So regarding the unknown, you often quote saying, um, uh, Jung saying, life is a short pause between two great mysteries. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hayes, can you just speak briefly about this fear of ambiguity, this need to accept constant change as the nature of our reality, and this need to make friends with this vast sea of the unknown? Um, you know, we might even call that vast sea of the unknown, the unconscious, the collective unconscious, to really become mature, uh, uh, mature adults. Well, the nature of nature is change, as you pointed out, and this is nothing new. It's been observed for millennia. Um, but the human ego, which is one complex among many, which thinks it's the boss, by the way, and it's one of many voices intrapsychically, ego serves important functions in terms of carrying out our executive decisions. Uh, it helps you, you know, tie your shoes every day. It helps you look both ways for you across the street and so forth. But it's a very conservative agent. It's it's intimidated by change. <coughs> Excuse me again. One of the changes I'm dealing with as I get older, as I am now, my vocal cords have changed. So my voice has changed and it's more difficult to sustain an interview like this. And that's just a function of aging. So if I don't like that, then I consider that the alternative to aging is not so pleasant either. So then I sort of deal with what I have to deal with. So, um, you know, the, the ego is terrified by change and by ambiguity because it undermines its sense of stability and predictability. The, ego's, the ego has a complex. A complex has a complex. And the ego's complex is control. It wants to be in control. I wish to understand this. I wish to manage this. That's understandable, but life seldom cooperates. 
and and when you're dealing with human relationships you you realize how that comes out in in comp, uh, compulsive behaviors it comes out in controlling behaviors or in my personal life if i try to maintain control so much that's what sets up the trickster as you just suggested um or it simply frustrates us so you know the the, the key is to recognize the fragility of the ego, the necessity of the ego, but the the summons of the ego to encounter change and to go with it, to embrace it, um, rather than than simply run from it, deny it, or whatever. And another example of that, of course, is aging, aging and mortality. We are genetically built to disintegrate, <laughs> to to dissolve at the end. Now, how does the ego like that? Well, it doesn't like it very much at all. And yet, the more it insists on its own sovereignty, the more neurotic it's going to be. You can talk about neurosis as any time we're allied against nature. Well, human ego functions, in many cases, is built on top of nature and trying to dominate it, rather than recognize with, with aging and other changes, one has to go and one has to live with them. And, and operate in the best way you can in the face of that. So, um, again, ambiguity is always destabilizing to the ego. It prefers clarity and predictability. So that's a big shadow issue. One of your important comments on this issue was actually quoted uh, in our recent episode on Jung's metaphysics with one of your greatest fans, the idealist philosopher Bernardo Castro. Uh, his book on Jung's metaphysics, for which you actually wrote the introduction for, and he quoted this really powerful image you give of the ego being like a wafer-thin boat floating on a vast iridescent sea of the unconscious. Mm -hmm. Can you explain what you meant by that in terms of our ego not being in charge, as you just mentioned? Well, you know, we seem to think it is, and mm -hmm. why it is just so important for us to realize this if we're just ever going to become mature and, and, sure. calm and satisfied. Well, that that image, that metaphor of the ego as a thin wafer floating on a vast iridescent ocean, because that ocean is alive with scintillas of other energy, is to try to reposition it. Someone asked, it came in response to a question, do you think the relationship between consciousness and the unconscious is roughly 50-50? And I said, no. And that's why I, I use that phrase, to suggest that this is... The unconscious is as vast as nature. You carry the human race inside of you. <laughs> you are nature, naturing inside of you. And the ego is such a tiny cluster of that. Now, it is charged with important responsibilities, such as stopping at stoplights, looking both ways before you turn uh, to cross the street. Those are important uh, ego functions. But it's not in charge. It's not the boss. You know, it's equivalent to the religious tradition of saying, not my will, but thine. Of, of, of recognizing the importance of a conversation with the unconscious, with the different parts of the personality. When one does that, it's not self-indulgent. It's not narcissism. It's very humbling to do this. It's extremely humbling because then I have to realize I'm not so special. I'm not in charge of the universe. I, I'm, I'm not magical. I am this, this human being who's struggling to make sense as best I can. And when I do that, I lift off of myself and off of others a lot of hidden agendas. And, and frankly, you're going, one is going to have greater compassion for other people, I think, when one realizes too, well, you know, they're struggling with their shadow. And, and it's operating within their lives. And sometimes it's easy, you know, as, as Jesus said, I can see the speck in your eye, but ignore the log in mine. It was a perfect example of the shadow. I see what's wrong with you, but I fail to see what's wrong with me. Well, you know, that's a professed ignorance that perpetuates the shadow. Rather, one has to say, and, and where is, the, again, as I said before, where is that coming from really from within me? And typically, it goes back to those childhood stories that we referenced, whereby the world is large, overpowering. We're powerless in the face of it. So how are you going to cope with that for a few, century, few centuries or a few decades? 
Well, you, 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 you create stories that help you survive and function, depending on the circumstances in which fate places you. But again, when those stories are not examined, when they're given a certain measure of autonomy, they then conduct your life for you. Kierkegaard in the 19th century talked about a man who read his own obituary in the newspaper and was shocked to realize he died because he'd never fully understand he was here in the first place. I think it's possible for most of our life to be on automatic pilot for us to respond to complexes that are triggered and they have their program to serve and to, to really sit back and, and reflect on one's life. Where's this coming from in me? What makes me do this or seems to control me when I make these decisions? Um, what is the force or the idea that I have to encounter? For example, we never do crazy things. We do logical things if we can understand the emotional premise that was triggered, the premise that is driving this behavior. And it's then that we get back to the old stories and we realize the old constructions of uh, self and world are the things that have to be outgrown and so forth. So just to flash back to the example of the empty nest syndrome that we were, I was referencing, um, this is a person right now who's having, and to his credit, he's doing this. He has to look upon his own needs that were transported to the, transferred to the daughter throughout 18 years. And now she's off to university. And that has come crushing back on his own shores. And the question is, what are you going to do about that? In what way is your emotional uh, sense of connection in life? Is, how is that to be fostered elsewhere? How does this affect your relationship to your partner? How does it affect your relationship to your, your colleagues? Where is it relationship to, your, to yourself and so forth? So it's, it's a kind of re-education process. And it's, a, it's always a summons to the next stage of our growth. Where do I have to take on something that I prefer not to take on? And that's why it's generically shadow work. Dr. Hollis, thank you so much for this high-speed review of some of the most key understandings from Jung's and from your work that really makes, makes these ideas so accessible to the Western mind. But just a moment to recap before we close. This, the unconscious seeks to manifest itself into consciousness. Storification leads to the full simplification and polarization of these actually much more subtle, uh, nuanced issues. And that storification leads to complexes and the elucidation of these complexes brings meaning and learning and consciousness to our lives. Dynamic change uh, and adaptation in nature forces us to make friends with that great mystery of the unknown, to make friends with ambiguity and with, with uncertainty. And then finally, our ego is just not in charge of our existence, but merely navigating this sort of vast ocean of unconscious material bubbling up from the depths of the psyche. Now, just any closing comments, James? I mean, do you think I was on the right, do you think I've picked the right themes from your work to demonstrate that? Is there anything we've missed out just to close to help, particularly with this idea of, you know, like you said, it, it nothing's going to take those shadow things away. Nothing's going to fix them. Is this idea of shadow integration, is there anything to add on shadow integration to give the listeners some tips, some clues about leading a life more examined? Sure. Just well, first of all, you, you ably summarized our conversation, so thank you for that. But what I've often said to people is th this is not about fixing you or curing you. You're not a disease. You're an ongoing process. But what this does is it makes your life very interesting. That every day, large choices are up for grabs, whether you know it or not. In other words, how much of your life is being governed by the old protective patterns? Quite understandably, we're not here to judge that, but we are here to deal with, with the consequences of your choices. And we say it's your life becomes more interesting, then we're really asking again that basic question, how am I to live my life given this circumstance? Or how am I to choose in the face of this? And as simplistic as that question sounds, it's, it's the invitation for the adult to step in. Because if I don't, 
I can be sure that the old stories and the old protective patterns, because basically we acquire, thanks to D.W. Winnicott, an English psychiatrist, um, you know, a series of acquired behaviors, the false self, he defined it. And the false self has the purpose of protecting ourselves and getting our needs met as best we can with our limited capacities. There's nothing wrong with that. It's understandable. It's partly how we survive childhood. But when it gets institutionalized within us, as it does through repetition and becomes habituated, then you realize your life is being defined by the fate to, into which you were thrown. And your protections that were once helpful to you are now harmful. The single biggest thing that I learned in Zurich when I was there for my own analysis years ago was what you've become is now your chief obstacle. And that's the irony of this that many of the attitudes and behaviors that we would most depend upon, such as denial or accommodation or going along with the flow or something like that, that most of them are now standing in the way of our growth and development. And yet, if I don't do them, I'm going to be flooded with anxiety because I've gotten used to them. They were protective and they got me this far. So that's one reason why shadow work is, is uh avoided as much as possible because it exposes me to my vulnerabilities, to my basic fears, and to trying to find a new story that is more serviceable for an adult's conduct of life. Beautifully summarized. Now, I can't let you go, Dr. Hollis, without just letting the listeners know about your recent collaboration with Jose Enrique Pardo on uh, a film called Soul Heal which mm -hmm. speaks directly about the very particular wounds and healing of men uh, mm -hmm. in this time of change for gender roles. Now, obviously, a lot's been written about the healing of women uh, in, in this great age of moving towards equality of the sexes and, and justice for generations of, of sexual abuse, but, but much less has been said uh, about the issues of men. So mm -hmm. this film is very, very important. Um, and do feel free, listeners, to go away and check it out. There is the the website Soul Heal, and um, I won't uh, ask Dr. Hollis to say uh, too much on it because I can I can uh, totally imagine that your your voice must be near its end now, Dr. Hollis. But is there anything you'd like to mention very briefly on that that collaboration with Pardo? Sure. That 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 film and it's twenty two minutes and it costs something like a dollar ninety nine or some massive fee is strictly a nonprofit effort on our part to stir conversation with men because um, men in particular receive tapes about what it means to be a man. And many of those tapes are um, self-estranging and cut men off from the reality of their inner life. And therefore, they're constantly trying to prove their um, worth, their belonging to manhood by their achievements and their accomplishments and so forth. And not only have made a pretty much a mess of the world and, and uh, abused a lot of women, they've also abused their inner life. And it's out of that, that terrible deformation that goes on intrapsychically that men's violence rises. And um, so this is a film that's designed, again, to, to raise these issues, to talk about them. And any income that we get beyond our basic costs were, is donated to women's abuse groups and youth uh, youth at risk groups, too. So um, Soul Heal is, is and it will be useful, perhaps, for women to watch. I mean, it's 22 minutes, so pay attention and, and you might learn something about those strange creatures called men. Mm. And uh, fix those issues. We might just fix the whole world, isn't it, Dr. Hollis? So it just leaves me to say thank you so much for your time, Dr. Hollis. You're a natural teacher, and your books are an inspiration to so many in their, uh, their way of making Jung a little bit more accessible and more understandable. Listeners, do please check the show notes uh, for a link to all of his books. Um, as I said, they're an amazing window into sort of reframing Jung's work for our, for our modern time. And their wisdom is just clear, as you can hear from Dr. Hollis's extraordinary sort of clarity. Um, Bernardo Castro said that Dr. Hollis's books had helped him hugely navigate some really, really challenging times. Um, so do also check out that interview with Bernardo Castro. I'd also like to thank Laura London, 
of the Speaking of Jung podcast for her incredibly well-informed interviews of Dr. Hollis. So do go back and listen to, uh, she's spoken to Hollis, uh, Dr. Hollis for many, many hours, uh, beautiful interviews. Um, and I also uh, highly recommend um, my interview with Dr. Monica Whitman uh, on the collective unconscious. If you're interested in Jung and wanting to get more of a sort of understanding of potentially scientific basis, um, you know, we we really try to work out just how deeply we can get this understood. So with all that in mind, Dr. Hollis, thank you so, so much. It's been a privilege to talk with you, and I appreciate your capacity to summarize these things. You did it very well. Thank you. 